Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> when I was a kid, my dad had a saying that used to always puzzle me. Someone would come along and he would say of them, they are too clever by half. You know, uh, and it was a frequent saying, and I always thought, what, what does that even mean? Uh, so one day, I was probably 12 or 13. My father was not the most approachable man in the world. I got up the courage to ask him what he meant by that. And he said, it's people who are too smart for their own good. Or they're smarter than they think they are. And they're headed for a fall. They're too clever by half. Well, if you look that phrase up uh, in a dictionary, you will find that it means someone annoyingly proud of their own intelligence and in danger of overreaching oneself. Reminds me of a story that I heard many years ago about a young attorney who was defending a man who was accused of biting another man's ear off in a barroom brawl. And this novice attorney was questioning a witness. And so he said to the witness, did you actually see the defendant bite the man's ear off? And the witness said, no, sir, I did not. Now, that was the answer that he wanted. That was the answer that he needed. But the attorney was too clever by half. He was too proud of having got that answer. And he did not shut up. Instead, he asked another question of the witness. He said to him, exactly what did you see? And the witness said, I seen him spit it out. See, you, you go too far. You know, if you think you are so smart that you end up hurting yourself, you need to quit when you're ahead in, in legal squabbling. That is something of the charge that Paul's opponents make against him in Romans chapter 3, these first eight verses. Paul, you've gone too far. You, you've said that salvation is by grace through faith based on the work of Jesus Christ and you've gone too far. You've thrown away any advantage of the Jew. You've, you've said this is worthless. This is of no value whatsoever. And it's interesting because in the charge that they make, they go too far. They prove more than they want to prove. And Paul very quickly points that out. You know, when they, they basically make the accusation of what you're saying is true, God is unrighteous. Paul said if God is unrighteous, he can't judge the world. And one of the things the Jews were absolutely certain of was that God was going to judge the world. But he was going to judge you Gentiles, not us Jews. And Paul has proven in Romans 1 and 2 that God is going to judge everyone. Because everyone is equally guilty. So, they ask the question. There's basically three objections they have here. The first is, is there any advantage to being a Jew? Now, the apostle did not teach that Jewish heritage and the Mosaic law and ceremonies 
were not important because they were. They were God-given. They had tremendous importance. But here's the key. They were not in Paul's day, and nor had they ever been means of satisfying the divine standard of righteousness. All of the Mosaic law and all of the ceremonies were designed to show man that he could not keep God's law, that there had to be a substitute. Think of all the sacrifices that were brought, all of the blood of sheep and bulls and goats that were slain on Jewish altars. That was a way of saying, you can't meet the law, there's got to be a substitute. And all of those sacrifices were pointing to the substitute, Jesus Christ, who would come and offer himself as the Lamb of God, spotless, sinless, that he might make atonement for sinners. They, the, 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 the law and the ceremony offered the Jews great spiritual advantages, but they did not provide spiritual security. After his conversion, you will note that Paul continued to worship in the temple when he was in Jerusalem. He faithfully practiced the moral teachings of the Mosaic law. He even personally circumcised Timothy to satisfy the Judaizers that were in the region of Galatia. Since Timothy was uh, only Jewish on his mother's side, his father was a Gentile. Uh, Paul even continued to follow many of the ceremonial customs, rabbinical patterns. He made a vow at Jerusalem, you remember, because he did not want to give undue uh, offense to the legalistic Jews. We find that in Acts chapter 21. But the essence of Paul's preaching was that none of those outward acts had any saving benefit. None of them were of any salvific importance. And that a person can become right with God only through trust in his son Jesus Christ. There is no other way. It was that truth of salvation only by God's grace working through man's faith that the unbelieving Jew found intolerable because it exposed the worthlessness of their traditions, the hypocrisy of their ostentatious devotion to God. Self-righteous, self-satisfied Jews could not bear any attack on their supposed Abrahamic security and their man-made legalism. The apostle had learned from all of these experiences that unbelieving Jews would always accuse him of teaching against God's chosen people, against God's promises to those people, and against God's purity. Unbelievers still do that. You get into a discussion with an unbeliever about the gospel, and they, well, what about, uh, what about little babies that are born with cancer? I want to know about that. Or, or, or what about, if God knew everything was going to happen before he started, why did he even make anything? Have you not run into that in your evangelism, in your attempts to share something? People, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or what, you know, they want to bring up all kinds of arguments 
If that's happened to you, and I'm pretty certain it has, if you have attempted to share the gospel with anyone, then take comfort. You are in uh, good company. They did the same thing to Jesus. And they did the same thing to Paul. So the first objection that Paul meets here is that, that he attacked God's people. Paul, and I, I could say here that Bible scholars are uncertain as to whether they were actual people who were making these claims or that Paul is just anticipating based upon his vast experience with the Jews what they are going to charge him with. It doesn't really matter either way because the accusers constantly uh, charged him with teaching that the Lord's calling of Israel to be his special people was meaningless. If that were so, then the apostle was blaspheming the very character and integrity of God. Paul knew the question that some Jews in Rome would have after they read the first two chapters of this letter. They would say, if our Jewish heritage, our knowing and teaching the Mosaic law, and our following Jewish rituals such as circumcision do not make a Jew righteous before God, then we wonder what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision. And there are many scripture passages that would immediately come to their mind that they could make their argument with. Uh, just before God presented the Ten Commandments to Israel, he said to them in Exodus 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He wrote of Israel, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses wrote that God said, you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people's who are on the face of the earth. Because of those and many, many, many other Old Testament passages that testify to Israel's unique calling and blessing, many Jews that had concluded that just being a Jew made them acceptable to God. If they were just born an ethnic Jew, they were okay. That there was no other requirement on them. But Paul has already pointed out that being a physical descendant of Abraham does not qualify you to be a spiritual descendant. If, if they did not have the mark of God's spirit within their heart, then the outward mark of circumcision in the flesh was worthless. As I said uh, last week, if you have not experienced the new birth, if you have not been changed by the Spirit of God just going into the waters of this baptistry, doesn't mean a thing. The inward change must be real for the outward sign to have any meaning at all. Nevertheless, Paul continues the advantage of being Jewish. He says, it is great 
in every respect. Although it did not bestow salvation on them, the Jews had many privileges that the Gentiles did not have. The Jews had been adopted by God as his children. He had made several exclusive covenants with them. He had given them his holy law, and he had promised that a Savior would come through the Jewish race. The Jewish people, indeed, were special in God's eyes. They were blessed and protected and delivered as no other nation on earth was. But most Jews had paid little or no attention to the negative side of God's revelation to them. For instance, in Amos chapter 3, God said of Israel, You only have I chosen among all the peoples of the earth. And then immediately he says, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. The Jews had forgotten that with high privilege also comes high responsibility. Becoming more specific regarding their benefits, Paul said to these hypothetical Jewish objectors, your advantage to begin with, some translations it means first, or it's translated first, and then people wonder why there's not a second or a third, but the word itself means first in importance. That's why some translations translate it chiefly, or as the ESV has here, to begin with. The thing that is of most importance, he says, is that you have been given the oracles of God. The word oracles is a diminutive of the word logos, which is almost always translated in the New Testament, word, supernatural utterances. Paul's point is that the Jews were entrusted with the very words of the one true God. That meant the Old, Old Testament, specifically referring to the Messianic prophecies that said that the Messiah would come and would provide atonement, especially it meant them. That gave them an unimaginably great privilege. And think about that for a moment. To begin with, the most important thing, why didn't he say, God delivered you out of Egypt, sent ten plagues on the Egyptian people, killed the firstborn as the tenth one, and delivered you. Why didn't he say God took you through the Red Sea as on dry ground and drowned the army of Pharaoh when they tried to cross? Why didn't he say God fed you with manna in the wilderness for 40 years? Why didn't he say God dammed up the Jordan River so that you could walk across as on dry ground? And when you marched around the city of Jericho seven days, the walls fell flat. God gave it to you. Why didn't, you, why didn't God say that he gave you prophets who performed great miracles? Why didn't he say, look at the ministry of Elijah and Elisha? Elijah performing seven miracles. Elisha with a double portion of his spirit, 14. Why didn't he say any of that? Rather, he said, to begin with, the most important thing, you have the word of God. Be careful. Because in our country today, in the church in the 20th century, 
in many, 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 many places, the word of God is shunned. It's it's scooted off. It's it, it's still important, they say, but the proclamation of it is not important. In its place have come light machines and fog machines and and drama and all kinds of things that may not be bad in and of themselves if it were not in place of the most important thing. Now I know what some of you are thinking, Brother Bob, you're just saying that because you want to protect your job. Well, there's some truth to that, I'd have to admit to you. As you can readily see, I'm addicted to food. But I am saying that because that's what the Bible says. That's what Paul said. That the most important advantage the Jew had is the word of God. Because the word of God told them who God was, what he expected. The word of God told them that here is the standard for you to be right with me. Here is what you can do if you do not meet that standard. Here is how you can atone for sin. And ultimately, here is the one who will take away the need for any more sacrifices. Jesus Christ, who will die for sinners once for all. And there will be no more need of any more sacrifice. But the Jews forgot that. They forgot about the great privilege. What an awesome privilege it was to have the word of God. They even lost it one time. Remember over in 2 Chronicles 34? They're, they're kind of, you know, doing some restoration of the temple and they find a copy of God's law. And the priest takes it to the king, Josiah, at the time. And he tears his clothes, a sign of repentance. And he tells the people, these are things that we should be doing. We've, and we've forgotten it. Because we did not treasure God's word. For many centuries before the time of Paul, beginning during the Babylonian captivity, the Jews' reverence for their man-made rabbinical tra traditions and interpretations had come to far outweigh any reverence they had for God's written word. The religious leaders of Jesus' day prided themselves on their knowledge of the scriptures. They knew so much. And yet... When they try to maneuver him, the Sadducees try to back him into a corner over the question of marriage in heaven. He said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken? Because you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? He said, you don't know the Bible. The same attitude has characterized much of Christianity throughout its history. The teaching and standards of a denomination or of an exclusive group or sect have frequently overshadowed and completely contradicted God's own revelation in the Bible. You have heard me say many times that the Baptists in McMinn County believe the whole Bible because they don't know what's in it. And when you start to tell them what's in it, oh, well, I don't believe that. No, 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 I can't accept that. that oh, no, no, huh? Belonging to a Christian church is much like being a Jew under the old covenant. Outward identity 
with those who claim to be the people of God, even when they are genuine believers, is of it, in and of itself no saving benefit to the unbeliever. Such a person does, however, have a great advantage if he is in a congregation of people where the word of God is proclaimed. Now, failure to obey that word is going to bring greater re responsibility, but it is an advantage to at least hear the word of God, to know that there is a way of salvation. So that's the objection, first of all, that Paul was attacking God's people. And Paul said, no, I'm not either. And then the objection that he attacked God's promises, verses 3 and 4. Paul anticipated and confronted this, this teaching that somehow the law of God had been abrogated because the promises to Israel would not come true. As any student of the Old Testament will tell you, God's promises to his chosen people from Genesis to Malachi are numerous. They are many. So how was it possible for Paul to say that a Jew was not secure in those promises? And Paul's answer reflected both the explicit and implicit teaching of the Jewish scriptures themselves. God had never promised any individual Jew no matter what his physical lineage from Abraham or any of the other great saints of the Old Testament, he never promised to any individual Jew that they could claim security in God's promises apart from repentance and personal faith in God resulting in obedience from the heart. You remember the blessings and the cursings? That, you know, if you do this, you're blessed. If you don't do it, you'll be cursed. Almost all of the condition, all of the promises to individual Jews in the Old Testament are conditional. For instance, Isaiah 55. Here's a good illustration. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The passage that I read earlier from Amos chapter 3 verse 2. Uh, many of God's greatest promises were accompanied by God's severest warnings. Most of the promises, again, were conditional. They were based on faith and obedience. Now listen carefully. The few unconditional promises that God made were to the nation of Israel as a whole, not to individual Jews. The apostle, therefore, agreed in part with his critics. What then? If some did not believe, that's being very generous, by the way, some, actually the vast majority of the Jews in the first century had not believed. But Paul's being gracious, you know. He's not going to say all of you are scumbags. What if some did not believe? Then their unbelief will not nullify uh, the faithfulness of God. His opponents were perfectly right to defend God's integrity. 
no matter how men respond to his promises, God is absolutely faithful to keep his word. Later in the epistle, Paul strongly affirms that God has not rejected Israel. We, we, we're gonna, when we get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, we're, we're going to, of necessity, have to touch on the question of eschatology. Where do you stand on a millennium? You know, I've stood almost everywhere, to be honest with you. But the staunchest amillennialist in the world has to admit that something is there about the physical descendants of Abraham. You just can't get, listen to what he says in Romans chapter 11. I do not want you, brethren, to be misinformed of the mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. I believe that ultimately the national salvation of Israel is as inevitable as the promises of God are irrevocable. I've said before now, you have to understand now though, the people of Israel are just as lost as the people in Iraq. Today, now, we are the Israel of God. We are the church of God. We are God's chosen people. I don't believe, however, that God is finished with the physical descendants of Abraham because the promises that he made to them are unconditional but that future certainty gives individual Jews no more present guarantee of salvation than pagan Gentiles the mistake of Paul's accusers was in believing that God's unconditional promises to Israel applied to all individual Jews at all times Paul shows earlier in Romans chapter 9 when he writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through, your, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. The accusers were right, were right in concluding that God cannot break his word. If the blessings of a promise failed to materialize, it was because the people did not believe and obey the conditions of the promise. But their unbelief could not prevent the salvation which God would ultimately bring to the promised nation. But an even deeper truth than that is this. Contrary to the thinking of most Jews, salvation was never offered by God on the basis of heritage, ceremony, good works, or any other basis except that of faith. He's going to prove that unequivocally in chapter 4. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. It is by faith. So Paul asked rhetorically, the fact that the Jews who did not believe forfeited their personal right to God's promise blessings and barred them from the inheritance of God's kingdom will not nullify the faithfulness of God. His salvation will come to Israel one day. 
when all Israel will be saved. So to the question, will God break his promise? Does man's unfaithfulness mean that God is faithless? By no means. And again, that's the strongest negative expression you can use in the Greek. It implies impossibility. You're, you're out of your mind, people. You know, you're, you're, you're talking crazy, you know. Uh, that, that just that doesn't make any sense at all. God cannot be unfaithful in any of his promises. Paul was saying, let God be true, though every man be found a liar. Listen, if every human being who ever lived on the face of this planet stood up and said, God is faithless, God would still be true, and every man who testified against him would be found to be a liar. God will never be unfaithful or unrighteous. That is an impossibility. Paul quotes from Scripture as he regularly did. He goes, as I said last week, he goes to the great penitential psalm of David, Psalm 51, the most illustrious and beloved king of all of Israel, from whose throne Messiah himself one day will reign. It is written so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Because God is perfect and because he himself is the measure of goodness and truth, his word is its own verification and his judgment its own justification. It is absolute, utter, absurd folly to suppose that the Lord of heaven may not prevail against the sinful, perverted judgment that either man or Satan could bring against him. He is God, righteous, holy, faithful, always. The third objection then is Paul attacked God's purity. This is one we get a lot. This is one we get a lot. If you preach the grace of God, how is man saved? Believe, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Oh, then you mean, and then keep all of the commandments, be baptized, go to church. No, I mean, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if that's the case, people can just live any way they want to. That's the objection you hear all the time against grace. No, you, you know, you gotta, you, you can't do that, preacher. If you do that, people will just, oh, they'll just do all kinds of terrible things. Well, I got news for you, they'll probably do all kinds of terrible things anyway. I know I have. I am just thankful that God's grace is what saved me and God's grace is what keeps me. I, I, you, don't save, you, know, you don't save yourself and you can't keep yourself saved. It's all by grace. All of it is by grace. The argument of accusers would be something like this. If God is glorified by the sins of Israel, God shows himself to be faithful despite their unfaithfulness, then actually, you see, sin glorifies God because their unfaithfulness magnifies the faithfulness of God. So sin actually brings glory to God. So Paul, you're saying that what God strictly forbids actually brings him glory. You're saying that God is like a merchant who displays a, a, a magnificent piece of jewelry on a 
piece of black velvet cloth because against that cloth the jewelry stands out so much brighter and brilliant. So let's sin all that we can so we can bring glory to God. They are saying, Paul, you are charging God with using man's sin to bring about his glory and that is blasphemy. You are impugning the righteous purity of God. Not only that, but if man's unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, then what are we going to say about God's judgment? If what you say is true, why does God punish sin? If my sin brings glory to God because his grace abounds, then how can God punish my sin? Paul said, you know, I'm thinking like a man. I speak as a human. That's the way people think. You've read the story of Rasputin, I, I suppose. He was antinomian to the core. That was his thinking was the, the more adultery you commit, the more God is magnified. Don't think for a minute, Paul says, that I believe such perverted nonsense. This is what you're accusing me of, but it could not be further from the truth. Again, he uses that phrase, meganeto, by no means. That's absolutely impossible. Obviously, God does not encourage or condone sin in order to glorify himself. If that were true, how could God judge the world? If God is unrighteous, how can he judge the world? And I said, if the Jews understood anything about the nature of God, it was that he was a perfect judge. From the earliest part of the Old Testament, God is called the judge of all the earth. The psalmist repeatedly referred to him as a righteous judge. A major theme of virtually all of the prophets is that of God's judgment, past, present, and future. Paul's very obvious point is that God would have no basis for equitable, righteous, pure judgment if somehow he condoned sin. In verse 7, the apostle reiterates the false charges against him in somewhat different terms. He says, you claim that I say, if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? That was clearly a charge of antinomianism, being against the law, saying God's law does not matter. Live any way you want. Commit adultery, steal, lie, cheat. Have idols. Make idols. Make images of God in your own image. The critics were accusing Paul of teaching that a more wicked, the more wicked a person is, the more he glorifies God. The more faithless a person is, the more faithful he makes God appear. And the more that a person lies, the more that he exalts the truthfulness of God. Those were not hypothetical misrepresentations. Paul says, some of you have slanderously accused me of that. You're actually saying that's what I do. Paul's enemies obviously had repeatedly charged that his gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone undermined God's law and it granted a license to sin with impunity. In effect, they were saying that in God's eyes, sin was just as acceptable as righteousness. As I said, this will, be, this will be the defense of Judas Iscariot when he stands before God. Wait a minute, Lord. Okay, if 
look, I sinned in betraying you, but look what came about because of it. Salvation. They nailed you to a cross. Listen, I said this last week. Just because a sovereign God can bring glory to himself out of sin, that does not excuse the sin. That just brings more glory to God. And you cannot, you cannot, you must not say that I will sin because God will be glorified in it. That's horrible. Paul said the very thought of it is unimaginable. But that is the charge that people will make against sovereign grace. In my reading this week, I came across uh, one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite authors. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, and he said this, If your presentation of the gospel does not expose it to the charge of antinomianism, you are probably not putting it correctly. In other words, if you preach grace and all of its glory and all of its purity, and someone doesn't say, Well, if I believe that, I'd just do anything I want, then you probably didn't say it right. Because that's the charge they will make. If you just say, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And people don't say, well, wait a minute now, you got to add to that, you got to add, you got to keep all the commandments. You got... Listen, if I have been saved by grace through faith, I want to keep all the commandments. People make the charge, well, if I believe that, I'd just sin all I wanted to. You know what? I sin all I want to. Matter of fact, I sin a whole lot more than I want to. Grace does not mean that we are made perfect. It means that we are forgiven. The Pharisees and the scribes were hypocritical to the core, and yet they loved to condemn others for breaking the Mosaic law. And their traditions, even to the smallest degree, their religion was legalism personified. And the, the idea of divine grace was anathema to them. <laughs> and, you know, we Baptists, we sing amazing grace, and sometimes the idea of grace is anathema to us. We want to add something to it. The scribes and the Pharisees had a works righteousness. Their religion was founded on it. That was what characterized the Judaizers as well. So Paul is probably answering both of his critics, not only the legalistic Jews, but also the Judaizers. One of the most obvious characteristics of fallen human nature is a propensity, an amazing ability to rationalize sin. Even a little child, when confronted with sin, has some sort of rationalization for it, you know. Well, you, you did that. Well, I did it, but, I mean, you know, look here now. You know, I, you don't understand my circumstances. You know, we're, we're like David. You know, David made all kinds of excuses until finally he is confronted by the word of God, and he says, against God and God only have I sinned. Don't you find that interesting? I mean, he had definitely sinned against the nation. He was the king. He certainly sinned against Uriah the Hittite. He had him killed. He murdered. He had sinned against his wives. He'd sinned against Bathsheba. 
But he said, against you and you only have I sinned. Because he knew that ultimately sin is an affront to holy God. Ultimately, how it, how it plays out in the lives of other people is, of course, sinful as well. But ultimately, he had offended God. He had disobeyed God. Later in this epistle, Paul's going to deal with the same issue. After saying where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, he will counter what he sees is coming. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? By no means. With all of the forcefulness that he could muster, Paul denounced the charge that he condoned sin of any kind. Least of all would he presume to justify sin by the vile argument that it brought glory to God. For a professed Christian to live in continual unrepentant sin is a certain mark that he is not saved. To be a Christian is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ genuinely desiring to serve him and to be genuinely sorry about sin to confess it to repent of it Paul was not in the least guilty of teaching antinomianism and he fully concurred that those who did teach such a thing their condemnation was just for those who teach that grace means you can sin with impunity, their condemnation is just. This is a difficult section of Scripture uh, to, to kind of take it apart and look at. But, but let me give you some principles for when you are trying to explain a difficult doctrine or deal with a tough subject. Start with something of which you are absolutely certain. That's what Paul does here. When you have to explain the unknown, start with the known. Okay? Note in his first argument, Paul says that God not being faithful is impossible. God is always faithful. He cannot be otherwise. In the second argument, he says that God is always righteous. He cannot be otherwise. I know that. Whatever else I may not know, I know that. I know God is always faithful. I know that God is always righteous. And he will judge in righteousness. And finally he says that if someone is arguing that we can do evil so that good will come out of it, know that that is utter nonsense. That that is unthinkable. That's morally repugnant. It's impossible. God is faithful. God is true. God is righteous. And you can never say, I'm going to sin in order for it to bring glory to God so that he, when he forgives me. Those things are an impossibility. Start with what you know, what you're certain of, and, and stay with that. Whatever else I know, I know this. I know the character of God. He cannot be otherwise. Let's pray. Our Father and our God.